Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, just want to make sure that you're following along with the Lincoln Project on all of our coverage regarding the January 6th committee hearings. Testimony has been explosive. The evidence has been damning against Donald Trump and his attempt to steal the 2020 election. I hope you'll follow us and understand just how close we were to losing it all. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian U.S. covering the January 6th committee. In addition to his work with The Guardian, breaking scoop after scoop after scoop, Hugo also regularly appears as a political analyst for MSNBC, Peacock, and a variety of other outlets. He's coming to us today from Washington, D.C. Hugo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Hugo, you've been on the front lines covering the Select Committee on January 6th and its public hearings of the last five or six weeks. So I want to take a chance to recap for our listeners what we've seen so far from the first one, you know, back at the beginning of June up until now. So what have you seen? Look, I mean, these hearings are primarily for the public. It's not for reporters like me who have been kind of covering this for 11 months. It's to tell a story, and it's to tell a story in as compelling and as understandable a way as possible for someone who doesn't follow politics. And to that end, I think they've been really successful. I mean, it's a really complicated narrative, and they've managed to distill it down into this multi-pronged effort by Trump to overturn the election. And at the very end was the capital attack. It was just one of several kind of schemes he had to try and return himself to the Oval Office. And telling that story is difficult and it's complicated. And I think they've done a really good job of that. And in doing so, they've still been able to tease out new information that even the reporters covering it didn't know. And I think the Justice Department didn't know. And that includes stuff like Republican members of Congress seeking pardons, John Eastman seeking pardons, Rudy Giuliani seeking pardons, and then Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, which was explosive in so many different ways including for the fact that she revealed that Trump tried to open a channel of communication to people like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, who had direct ties to the militia groups that stormed the Capitol. You know, you said something interesting there, and I think that this too often goes both unnoticed and unremarked upon, which was January 6th was sort of like his last shot, right? It was his last biggest opportunity, when I say him, Trump's biggest opportunity to find a way to stay in power. But to your point, it had been going on maybe even since before the election, right? I mean, we as an organization were not surprised at all when we heard on election night, you know, in fact, we did win this. And then when we saw that on, I think it was that Saturday after the election, that Joe Biden was deemed the president-elect by the media, the Biden campaign sort of went into transition mode, as it should, if it's going to start building a government. But that Monday the court challenges started. 
And in fact, you know, as an aside, Hugo, it turns out that on that following Thursday, I think the 11th or Wednesday, Mark Meadows sent an opposition research memo on the Lincoln Project featuring me by name, Rick Wilson by name, Stuart Stevens by name, to Bill Barr, the attorney general of the United States, saying, here's the document we discussed. Now, that was in response to the fact that we had knocked a bunch of their big white shoe law firms out of these court cases. But what it says to me, Hugo, one is not to make it too personal, although it is, is that they had been working on something and we, by our actions, interrupted some of their plans. They were pissed off, not surprisingly. But it goes back to your point, which was January 6th was the biggest, loudest, most dangerous, most deadly, but it wasn't the first and it wasn't by far the only thing that they'd tried to do. Exactly right. I mean, when CNN obtained the text messages of Mark Meadows, the one that really stood out to me was the text message from Don Jr., who days after the election, he texts Meadows, look, we control the states and the state houses. We control the legislatures. We have total control, right? He knew days after the election that where the Trump campaign needed to take the fight was to the states, and that's exactly what they did. They were trying to convince, through John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, they were trying to convince state houses to certify alternate slates of electors. And that was the basis of the entire fake electors plan. And it started days after the election. There is no way that Don Jr. came up with this legal theory by himself days after the election. This is something that was in the works for weeks, if not months. They had kind of prepared and laid the groundwork in case Trump lost so that they could deploy it immediately and they were going to try this new effort of pushing it past the safe harbor dates, you know, through the deadline of the ECA all the way up to January 6th. Right, because I believe, correct me if my dates are wrong here, Hugo, is that December 14th was the day that the genuine electors voted in their respective state houses or cast their ballots in their respective state houses for, you know, the candidate that won that state. But it also appears now that they already had the sort of fake electors in place because if they hadn't, they wouldn't have been able to sort of organize and vote for Donald Trump. And then they had all of these certificates printed and ready to go. They had the templates ready to go. I mean, this was not something they did on the fly. This was something that required weeks, if not months of planning. And now I keep coming back to this Don Jr. text because it's so telling that immediately after the election and that it was declared that Trump lost, people were already mobilizing within Trump's orbit, within the Trump campaign to set up the groundwork to challenge the election results, even though there was no basis to do so. Right. And I think that's one thing, just as we've seen in recent weeks, whether or not it's the Roe versus Wade decision, whether or not it's the New York gun decision, whether or not it's a lot of these other things that have happened, voting legislation that passed largely in 2021 as a result of basically legislative language being handed to a legislator or what they called a sentinel from the Heritage Foundation saying, here's what you should do. And the reason I bring up stuff like that that doesn't seem associated, Hugo, is that we should never forget that this shadowy conservative movement is dedicated, well-resourced, and relentless. They never stop. And so to your point, it plays that somebody would have been working on this all along. Who knows what dark recess it was in? Who knew who was involved? But clearly somebody was working on it. Now, the fact that people like Senator Mike Lee from Utah, you know, inserted the Kraken lady into it, you know, Rudy Giuliani being half-baked, John Eastman showing up out of nowhere, I guess maybe we're lucky that they were as incompetent as they were or 
the people who knew how to do this stuff either got scared off by actions like ours or just didn't want anything to do with it. I think it was more of a combination of these guys were trying it out and they wanted to see what would stick because a lot of these efforts to overturn the election strike me as you know throwing everything at the wall and seeing what would stick. They tried the fake electors. When the fake electors didn't work, they were like, nah, Pence, you should just throw the election to the House anyway. They had all this stuff about the Kraken lawsuits. You know, at one point, they were focusing on foreign election interference claims. And then when they realized that that wasn't going to fly, they were like, no, it was actually all dead people voting. And they just threw everything they had at it. But to your point about how it was all planned in advance and how the entire kind of machine operates, right? How like the Republican machine, how the Trump campaign, how these external political operatives like Steve Bannon and, and Roger Stone and Mike Flynn and these guys not part of the administration, not part of the campaign, doing their own thing, freelancing, but still all moving towards this common end of trying to return Trump to the presidency illegally. And there were also people like Matt Schlapp, Rick Grinnell, all these other people who were hangers on, to your point, had no governmental authority, no official authority. Their political power, I guess if that's the right word, derives only from their loyalty to Trump. And they're out there in places like Nevada, you know, coming up with this crazy 2000 mules thing in, in Atlanta, you know, Rudy's in Philadelphia at the garden shop trying to say, you know, a bunch of black people voted illegally. So to your point, I think the spaghetti analogy is a good one because they went everywhere they could, partially, I think, to convince their own people that it really was stolen, partially, I think, to keep the, the thing moving forward because clearly Trump wanted that. And then lastly, you know, I guess at some point there were official things. And then you had the things like the attorney general of Texas filing briefs, you know, saying, you know, we object to Pennsylvania's electoral votes, like which, again, was a cockamamie theory. But a whole bunch of Republican attorneys general went along with them. This was Trump's favorite thing all the way from the first impeachment to January 6th. Trump loves to use institutions to support his schemes. With the first impeachment, it was trying to get a foreign nation, Ukraine, to say they were going to open an investigation. With the 2020 election, it was getting these institutions like the Texas amicus brief, you know, you had all these House Republicans sign onto it. Like when you have these official bodies or members of Congress or some sort of official seal stamped on these efforts, it gives us an imprimatur of legitimacy. And he likes to use that and say, look, it's not just me saying it, it's all these institutions that you, the public, revere who are saying this. And he's always trying to weaponize this. And also a very classic strongman tactic, right? If you're in power, use the organs of governmental authority, official authority to your advantage, which we're now seeing, as I said a couple of minutes ago, in states where they're passing laws that make it more difficult to vote, you know, give more oversight about who and what decides what a voter is, who a voter is, whether or not a vote's valid. Obviously, gerrymandering is a centuries-old practice, so like that's just one they sort of perfected. But now you know, you're marching towards January 6th, and as we get to that, again, at some point between November 3rd on Election Day, December 14th when electors vote, and January 6th, some level of planning had to have occurred to have all of those people at the rally don't even take into the logistics of like Trump speaking on a stage. That's the easy part. These people had T-shirts printed up. So do you think that as we move forward here, we will see more of the planning for the actual day come into focus? Because it started certainly days, if not weeks ahead of time. 
Yeah, and you know, I can kind of run through the timeline a little bit to show you how this all developed, right? December 14, you have the deadline by which states have to certify their slates if they want Congress to count the results. Fast forward to December 16 or 17, a pro-Trump activist tweets, you know, we should do a march on the 6th. Day later, Dan Scavino retweets this and gives it immense traction. December 18, Trump meets with Patrick Byrne, Mike Flynn, and Sidney Powell in the Oval Office. And that's when they're trying to convince him to invoke Executive Order 13848, which would have given the president emergency powers to declare martial law, seize voting machines, and make Sidney Powell special counsel. They are unconvincing, and Trump doesn't buy their plot. Which says something, which is if Trump ain't buying it as badly as he wants this, how bad was their pitch? Right. But then it, like, it goes into January 6th mode. Like early hours of the morning on the 19th, he tweets out, you know, wild protests on the 6th, be there. And the committee is expected to draw a line between that tweet and these militia groups activating. Although it does seem that there was some preparation already happening independently of Trump before that date. And, you know, this was already kind of circulating as, you know, January 6th, we need to hold a big protest, big rally on that day. But then after the tweet, all of the stop the steal individuals go into place. You have Roger Stone talking to Ali Alexander. Ali Alexander sets up wildprotest.com, stopthesteal.com. All of the banner images on the websites change to, you know, there's going to be a rally on the 6th. On the Tuesday and Wednesday, you know, the Stop the Steal activists are applying for permits, you know, a permit on the east front of the Capitol, you know, various marches. It all runs into place. And there's a very interesting um, message that goes from Ali Alexander to Mark Fincham, which says, you know, I'm planning our plans for January 6th. It will be ready in the next 48 hours be there on January 6th. And this is like December 23. I mean, you know, we're still weeks away from this. And this all builds up through the end of December. And, you know, you see the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys text messages, they're all getting ready to go. They're all signing to plan stuff. They're all trying to buy stuff. We don't know who these handlers are. We don't know the people above the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys who were, you know, connecting what kind of the activists were doing to what the militias were doing. But then obviously in early January, they all come to DC. And then on January 5, they're ready to go. Well, and Steve Bannon had said, it's going to be crazy. You got to be here. But, you know, one, one thing I saw, it was a headline and I read the story a little bit, but not closely enough. You've probably seen it that, you know, some concern that because if Trump actually believed he won the 2020 election, Hugo, that therefore it would be difficult to prove intent. That's like saying, you know, the bank robber really believes it's his money. Therefore, it's OK to rob the bank. Like, that just seems like a cockamamie thing. I mean, his intent was clear going back to the first debate when it comes to these militias, right? Stand back and stand by. Now, did he say that on the fly? He probably did. That doesn't matter. Like, he knew in that recess of that lizard brain of his what that was going to cause. He knew that there were people who were dedicated to him, might still be to this day, who would stand and wait for that signal, real or imagined. And so how do you see this idea of intent? Because to your point, Trump is not a linear thinker, but he knows what he wants and he knows instinctually how to find people who will help him get it. So that would seem to me anyway, not being a lawyer, to demonstrate some level of intent. So the best response to this came from George Conway and his wonderful legal mind. I'm going to defer to him because he just put it out so clear in the Washington Post and I tweeted it because I think it was so well phrased that, you know, he says like some are arguing that prosecutors could face difficulty proving criminal intent if Trump sincerely believed he had won the election. But Conway writes, a righteous motive is not a defense 
and criminal acts motivated by an honest belief in the justness of one's cause are still criminal acts. Even if Trump believed there had been election fraud, he wasn't entitled, as you say, to unleash this mob on the Capitol, like intimidate the vice president or you know, send phony electors to Congress or whatever it may be. Irrational belief doesn't negate his criminal intent. He intended to obstruct that certification on January 6th. He intended to defraud or conspire to defraud the United States on January 6th. And I think that's what's really important here. And so let's fast forward now to Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. And I'm going to put aside the insanity of Trump grabbing a steering wheel and trying to choke his Secret Service detail leader, because that is the one that's gotten the most attention because it further demonstrates his unfitness for office. But it's important because it shows how desperately Hugo, he wanted to go to the Capitol to literally lead the charge himself, which again also would seem to me to prove that his intent was to obstruct this, to deny this event. You know, the idea now that, you know, some of this stuff that was it Mike Pence's national security advisor being like, you're not putting him in that car to, you know, a Secret Service agent in the West Wing, right? Like he's not going to get in that car. You guys will fly him to Alaska or something. I mean, I was lucky enough to work at the White House, Hugo, and be involved in a lot of the stuff that involved security. I mean, I was an advanced guy, but we were around each other all the time, right? Because that's where the sort of rubber met the road of politics that's external to the White House. So someone who's a veteran of that stuff, hearing and seeing this stuff, it's so unbelievable. You couldn't make it up. If you went to a Hollywood writer's room, they'd laugh you out. But here we are now in a situation where Tony Ornato, the deputy chief of staff, who's a, still an active Secret Service agent, is telling you know some other agent to put Pence in the car. And Keith Kellogg is like, absolutely not. He ain't getting in that car. And so just all of this stuff starts swirling. And I wonder, from your perspective and the research you've done and the reading you've done and your observations, how much of this was intentional and how much of it was sort of like were things overtaken by events, like stuff just started rolling and it got out of the box. It was uncontrollable. I think that's very difficult to establish at the moment. You know, we can only pass what Ornano has told the committee, what Cassidy Hutchinson has testified to. You know, yes, I think we can safely say that Hutchinson testifying under oath, it was true that Trump desperately wanted to go to the Capitol. There was no concrete plan what to do when he got to the Capitol, whether he was going to give a speech on the inaugural platform or if he was going to go to the House and literally obstruct it himself. It's not clear. But obviously, Trump directly wanted to go to the Capitol. Ornato has told the committee in his deposition that you know he wasn't exactly clear as to what vice president was doing and where he was, which is also very strange. You know, He told the committee that he believed Pence at one point was going back to the residence. There's a lot of accounts that are difficult to believe or put in place. We know Ornato has a history of distorting the truth or maybe obfuscating the truth to some degree. And so I don't think we should put too much stock in what he was saying. But either way, there does seem to be this central thread of Trump wanting to go out of the Capitol, was not concerned about Pence's safety or what Pence was doing because he had a plan in mind. And that plan was to make sure that certification was stopped. He could see Pence wasn't doing it. So maybe it was in his mind that he wanted to go in and do it himself. Who knows? But there is something very sinister about the entire episode. And I think we've probably not heard the end of that yet. So we know that the testimony so far has been smart in that it's been, if it's not exclusively Republicans or, you know, Republican lawyers who served in a Trump administration role, it's pretty nearly unanimously Republican, you know, office holders, officials, whatever. There's the documentarian, the Capitol Police, obviously. Where do you see it going from here? I know that as of tomorrow, there'll be the next hearing. 
How do you see the arc developing up to this point? Well, the next turn is supposed to be Raskin leading the examination of how the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers prepared in the weeks leading up to the attack and then actually stormed the capital and how all the breaches were done by the Proud Boys in like all the key moments. And then there is at some point we expect there to be another or a final hearing about the 187 minutes of the capital attack where Trump sat back and did nothing. And, you know, this kind of speaks to the inaction part of the criminal statute where, you know, through action or inaction, he obstructed an official proceeding. I think there needs to be, and I don't know if the committee agrees with me, but I think there needs to be a hearing in the middle that kind of bridges these two things, right? You have to show to the American public how these two things are connected, either through intense and like the meeting of the minds almost, right? I mean, if you're trying to show a conspiracy, you've got to show meeting of the minds. You have to show that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers that stormed the Capitol didn't do it because they wanted to storm the Capitol. They wanted to do it because they wanted to stop the certification. Well, guess who else wanted to stop the certification? Freaking Trump. And you have to make that connection. You've got to spell it out for people because otherwise people, I think, see this in two kind of disparate lenses. They see, oh, one group wanted to storm it, but, you know, it wasn't Trump. It wasn't Meadows. It wasn't Meadows going in and being like, that. let's storm the Capitol. It was just some, you know, wackos. And then you have all this political stuff. You have to make that connection and spell it out in very easy to understand terms for people to grasp the enormity of what happened. And I hope they kind of do that. So let's stay on Meadows for a second. I mentioned his actions related to me personally and some of my counterparts. Cassidy Hutchinson mentioned that he, I think, was on January 5th that he was thinking about going over to this quote-unquote war room at the Willard Hotel where it was Roger Stone and all these other goons, and then sitting in his office sort of doom-scrolling through his texts and his Twitter. It sounds like, and I don't know if it was you that reported it, but the text messages that Hutchinson received the night before a testimony, you know, which or straight out of sort of like a mob movie, actually did. Initially, it was thought it was an associate of Meadows. Now it turns out it might have actually been him personally. I mean, he seems to be a key man in all this, where another guest on the show said, you know, he was trying, I think it might have actually been George Conway saying he was trying to tell the quote unquote normals, I'm trying to keep this under control while trying to keep Trump happy, which was an impossibility. You couldn't do both. So my reporting suggests that it, it was actually an associate of Meadows. And we think it's one of maybe three or four people that it could be. It's not exactly clear what the context was. It's difficult to get to the truth, which is why we've not kind of reported it, but I can kind of take you through the thinking a little bit. One person has kind of suggested to me that it was actually Cassidy reaching out to an associate who was also being subpoenaed by the committee or kind of asked to come before the committee. And they were just exchanging notes and being like, hey, you know, what should I do? You know, and, and the friend was saying, well, bear in mind, Trump always reads these transcripts, right? So it was a response to something. At least for the second message, that's what we understand it to be. Like, we don't know the context, and this is really key. Like, we don't know if this other person got directives from Meadows and made it sound like, oh, I'm just a friend. I'm just helping you out. Like, remember, like, you know, Trump reads the transcripts. I'm looking out for you. Or if it was actually, you know, don't flip on Trump. We just don't know the context. But, you know, it was really interesting. And the, and the committee doesn't say it's witness tampering or witness intimidation. But the fact that they raised it, you know, makes it pretty clear that they view this as a problem. And part of the reason why they rushed the hearing with Hutchinson was because they were worried that someone was going to get to her. Right. That Yeah, she gets scared off. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting and probably, I guess, not surprising. In that context, it's, I mean, it makes sense either way. There was just outright intimidation or 
you know, a warning from, you know, someone who would know that this guy, you know, look, he's a television addict. I'm sure he watches every second of it and gets more and more spun up as he sees people he thought were loyal to him start to flip on him. And then he does the obligatory. I've never heard of this person. They're a loser <laughs> kind right. of thing. I mean, if Melania testified, it would be who is Melania. You know, she was she I, I barely knew her. She brought me coffee. Right. Right. Exactly. But I mean, the, the thing about Hutchinson is I've read was that What's unique about her, too, is that, you know, she's 25, 26 years old, whatever it is, but she was Meadows' shadow, right? Everywhere he went, she went, whether or not it was in the West Wing, whether or not it was the EOB, whether or not it was the Oval Office or even Capitol Hill. So she was in a position to be, you know, an eyewitness, a literal eyewitness to history. Yeah, we know those two were very close. I mean, when Meadows was a member of Congress and was part of the House Freedom Caucus, you know, sources tell me that he would often bring Hutchinson into members-only meetings with other House Freedom Caucus members, which is very unusual. Normally, if it's members-only, it's members-only. Like, aides don't get to sit in, but Hutchinson did. And then when he went to the White House, he took Hutchinson with her, and Hutchinson was around Meadows all the time. And you can see from the interactions that they were very close. I mean, Meadows is addressing her like, quote, Cass, or like Cassie. You know, this is not someone who you barely know or is like a subordinate that you rarely deal with. This is someone who you deal with on a regular basis and you are close to them. And so she was clearly an eyewitness to all of these things. In fact, the only time where she wasn't an eyewitness was this whole Secret Service altercation. And she was upfront about that. And she said, look, this is what I was told after the fact, but this is still what I was told. And as it turns out, no one disputes the fact that Trump wanted to go to the Capitol or that it kind of spun out of control or that he tried everything to get to the Capitol. And so all of Cassie Hutchinson's testimony has played out to be accurate. And I think that's very significant. That's a good segue because this is one thing that we saw, which was, you know, in I guess it was probably hours after Hutchinson's testimony concluded, you started to see, you know, sources close to the Secret Service say that's not true, that, you know, this is inaccurate. She made it up. Then graphics of the quote unquote, the beast, right, which is a tank shaped basically like a Cadillac, which he wasn't in that day, Hugo, right? He was in a suburban, which Again, other than heavy armor and thick glass, is not that much different than a suburban anybody else might ride in. And then you saw, you know, you could see the video of him grainy as it was the Zapruder film of the ellipse, right? Sort of trying to at least appears he's moving around the cabin. But that so far was the only, you know, quote unquote, coordinated, you know, Republican counteroffensive that we've seen so far, which we had heard. At the beginning, you know, there was going to be counter programming. They were going to do this. And most of them went to ground almost as soon as the first hearing was over because they're like, oh, shit, we're in trouble. Here's the problem that they have. The problem is you can't argue with the facts. And when you have people testifying under oath, that's very difficult to counter program. And when you see all of the Republican attacks on the committee, 99% of it is procedural. Oh, they don't have minority counsel. Oh, they don't have, even though it's bipartisan, they don't have, you know, McCarthy's picks. They saw one opening with Hutchinson and they kind of seized on it. And it was the most inconsequential of openings. And this was the Secret Service. And it was like, oh, Hutchinson testified that Trump got in the beast. Well, technically, he got in the SUV, which is not the beast. So you have to discredit her entire testimony, which is not how this works. For all we know, Hutchinson just generally or kind of internally at the White House, they referred to any vehicle that the president got into as the beast, for instance, right? Like this is like the most minor of points and they're trying to use a colloquial term to discredit her entire testimony. This is not how this works. It's not how it works in a court of law. It's not how it works in court of public opinion. This is Republicans grasping at 
any strand or any kind of thread they can to try and desperately unravel it. And to be quite honest, I don't think it's succeeding because it's so desperate. But that's an old political trick, right? When you hate the story, attack the process. That's not new. But what is interesting is how many of the House leadership, you know, whether or not it's Kevin McCarthy or Elise Stefanik, McConnell or any of these guys who are just trying to stay out of the way as much as they can, right? The freight train's coming down the tracks and they're trying not to get run over in the process, which is, I guess, what they've always sort of done. Yeah. And, you know, Republicans have already come up in these hearings as a group of people who are seeking pardons after January 6th. And it's a terrible look because it really suggests a consciousness of guilt or fear that you're going to be prosecuted for some crime. You know, you don't just go and ask the White House counsel's office for a pardon. It's just indefensible. There is no way around it other than to say, you thought you did something wrong and that was why you were asking for a pardon. People who don't think they've done anything wrong don't go out seeking preemptive all-purpose pardons. And that was just the start of it. And I think Republican leadership is bracing a little bit for that final hearing when they get into what happened on January 6th and how McCarthy was desperately calling Trump. Like Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene like to say, oh, it was all Antifa. Well, your own House minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, doesn't agree. And he's like, no, Trump, these are your people. You've got to call them off. The fact that he called Trump to do this, like if he really thought it was Antifa, wouldn't he be calling freaking Biden? No, he was calling Trump because he knew it was Trump. Everyone knew it was Trump. Oh, and Hutchinson said that McCarthy called her and said, don't let him come up here. And McCarthy is, if he's a cat with nine lives, he's used about eight and a half of them with the MAGA caucus. But, you know, I think that's one other thing that I was reading this morning as we're taping this, Hugo, that Axios reported that the House Republicans, should they take control in November, you know, will extract vengeance on House Democrats, um, which is something that we'd heard previously as might have been a concern to some of the members of the committee is like, if we go through with all this all the way to the hilt, they're going to do it to us. Our assumption was like, well, they're going to do it to you one way or the other. But what's your sense of that sort of revenge plan that House Republicans might have? Well, I think I agree with you that they were going to do this or try to do this anyway. But the problem that Republicans now have is that the committee is called their bluff. And I know through my reporting that some of the House Freedom Caucus members are very aware of this fact that if the subpoena targets of the committee don't comply with those subpoenas, they set a precedent, Republicans set a precedent for members not complying with congressional subpoenas. If Jim Jordan doesn't go before the committee, if Andy Biggs doesn't go before the committee, for instance, and then the next Congress, when they're wielding gavels, they subpoena Democrats, Democrats are just going to turn around and be like, we're not going to comply with your subpoenas because you didn't comply with ours. And Republicans know that they are devaluing the power of congressional subpoenas as it pertains to members of Congress. And I think they are very aware of that. And this is kind of more bluster because there is no way around the fact that you're setting a precedent. And so they're trying to talk up that, like, oh, you know, we're going to subpoena you back. It's going to be very bad. Like, you know, do you want to still enforce these subpoenas? Because we're going to do it back to you. And the committee's like, yeah, why don't we? We'll call you a bluff. Well, you can also see that with Steve Bannon, he denied a congressional subpoena, was indicted for it by the Justice Department. I don't even know when his trial is currently scheduled to begin, but it's not for some time, I don't think. And then between all of the procedural back and forth and continuances, and then the committee will come to an end at some point. Or, you know, if Democrats lose the House, then, you know, will the court say, well, this is pretty much moot now. So it's not just, you know, members, but it's also like, okay, political opponents are going to be like, I'm not going to do that. It sort of has, in a weird way, devolved the whole process. And I think the other part that you pointed out is, are we now in a place where 
on the regular, the majority of the U.S. House will always be looking to subpoena members of the minority for one thing or another. So Steve Bannon is trying to move his trial date later into the year, basically saying all the negative publicity that has come out of the hearings means that the jury pool against me will be necessarily biased. And so you have to delay it past the hearings. The, the DOJ has kind of laughed this out of court, saying Bannon's name was mentioned all of like 30 seconds in seven hearings. So we don't think, you know, this is really a big concern at all. But it, it does show how Bannon is still trying to run out the clock. Bannon is very cognizant of the fact that if he can get this through to a Republican Congress, then maybe he stands a better chance. I actually disagree with this premise that once the House changes hands, DOJ suddenly won't prosecute. You know, this is the DOJ prosecuting. This is not Doug Letter, the chief counsel of the House of Representatives in court prosecuting. This is DOJ prosecuting. This is now a criminal matter. And so even if the House changes hands and the House counsel becomes a Republican House counsel, he's not the one prosecuting. He might make a motion in court to be like, let's drop this. But at the end of the day, from what I understand, it's DOJ's decision. And DOJ may not drop this. So I think Bannon might have a slight problem there. So let's stay on DOJ for a second, because, you know, I'm sure you see it a lot. You may even hear it a lot. I certainly hear it a lot when I talk to people or when I visit with people in person is Merrick Garland's not doing his job. The DOJ is not doing its job. I take the opposite view of having seen a couple of U.S. attorneys in action, having spoken to some folks who worked at the highest levels of the Justice Department, which is, I mean, Garland said, we're watching, I'm watching. You know, there has been some tussle between the Justice Department and the committee about documents. So it seems to me, at least as an outsider and amateur, Hugo, that DOJ is very interested in what's going on. I think people forget federal prosecutors have impaneled two grand juries looking directly at Trump. There's one grand jury seated in Washington that is looking at the rally organizers and the VVIPs connected to the rallies on January 6th, subpoenaing people like Ali Alexander. And the subpoenas are very, very broad, by the way. It's looking at, I don't remember the exact language, but it's something along the lines of all and any communications or contacts you had with members of the legislative branch and executive branch. That's like everything. That's even more broad <laughs> than the select committee subpoena. Right. And then there's a second grand jury looking at the lawyers in Trump's orbit involved in putting together these fraudulent election certificates and these fake electors and how it all came together. These are very, very close to Trump. They're like one step away from Trump. And DOJ's move has always been to work from the outside in, from the bottom up. They love this. This is how they construct their cases. And it's very methodical. It's evidence-driven. And the DOJ necessarily moves slower than the select committee because they need a threshold of evidence to issue the subpoenas in the first place, right? The select committee they can all vote and they can issue a subpoena. Like it's very straightforward. They can do it in 10 minutes. They can huddle on the house floor and the chairman goes, let's subpoena X. And they all go, okay, let's all agree to do that. And then they can just subpoena them. It's really straightforward. DOJ has evidentiary requirements, especially with the grand jury to issue these subpoenas. But the fact that they're already issuing these subpoenas means that they have sufficient evidence to be constructing criminal cases. And I think that's very significant. The fact that they are now asking for transcripts that the select committee has suggests they want to move beyond that closer again towards Trump. And the fact that they're openly doing this in court filings is a signal, I think, to both the select committee and to everyone else that DOJ is now ready to move ahead with a more aggressive investigation into maybe Trump himself and that it's time to start wrapping up and letting DOJ do its job. You know, we've spent a lot of time studying Trump and some people say, oh, well, you know, maybe they don't want to prosecute him because it would make him a martyr. I take it that whatever happens, if they indict him, or charge him, you know, he'll make himself a martyr. You know, they're after me. It's a witch hunt. They've always hated me. 
And if they don't, he'll say, see, I told you, they never had anything on me. It was all a hoax. It was all BS. The 2020 election was stolen. I told you. And I was exonerated. Right. And I was exonerated. Right, right. Take it to its most ridiculous conclusion without any proof. And so to me, I believe it's important right now. We have a history of putting governors in prison, members of Congress in prison, legislators, state officials. We are not like, say, Israel or France or maybe Italy, right, where we've had a history of prosecuting former national leaders, whether or not it's the the Office of Legal Counsel at DOJ and its guidance on sitting presidents. Does that apply to former presidents? But it's not something traditionally we've done. Yes. Although one thing that Garland said the other day really stood out to me. He was asked at a press conference over at Maine Justice, are you precluded from opening a criminal investigation into the former president? And he goes, well, I've checked with the Office of Legal Counsel and there is no guidance to suggest that I can't open a criminal investigation. And that's really significant because that shows Garland has at least taken the step of asking if he can open a criminal investigation into the former president. And, you know, it's important to note that you know, he didn't reveal whether he had asked Officer Legal Counsel if he could charge a former president, but the fact that he's asked if he can open a criminal investigation, I think is very telling, and I think a lot of people miss that. So as we wrap up here, so the next hearing happens tomorrow, as you're listening to this. What do you expect to see from Congressman Raskin as they start to present their case for the right-wing groups that we discussed? From what I understand, it's going to be an examination of a part of the timeline of how all these efforts came together, how the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers kind of planned for their efforts on January 6th. I understand it's going to draw on some of what DOJ has uncovered in its criminal investigation and its seditious conspiracy cases. They may also look at the First Amendment Praetorian, which was Flynn's personal bodyguard all the way from December 12th through to January 6th and beyond. They didn't actually storm the Capitol. We haven't seen images of them actually storming the Capitol, but they were there on the ground on January 6th. And there's a whole sort of very interesting activity that those members are doing. So I suspect they will probably draw some of that. And those are the main three groups we expect the committee to touch upon. They are going to try and tie Trump into this through Trump's tweet that I mentioned on the 19th when he says, you know, it's going to be a wild protest, be there. Because in many respects, that is the catalyst for a lot of these groups to mobilize, like the applications for permits. Like We don't know if it will spur directly because of Trump's tweet, but it certainly comes after Trump's tweet. So there is some sort of link there. And then, of course, Hutchinson has previously testified. And we don't know if the committee will expand on this, but Hutchinson has testified that Trump directed Meadows to call Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. And Roger Stone has known links to the Proud Boys. Michael Flynn has known links to the Oath Keepers. And suddenly we have a through line from the White House to the mobs that actually stormed the Capitol. Well, before we let you go, is there anything else you're working on that our listeners should be looking out for? By the time you're listening to this, we would have done a number of stories on what the committee is looking at and what the committee is focusing on between links between the White House and the extremist groups, and also how the Proud Boys were there at every moment the Capitol got breached, at all the key moments that there is a Proud Boy or some sort of Proud Boy involvement. And that's really interesting. There is also what DOJ and what the committee and what kind of, I think, reporters have yet to figure out is who was handling these groups. And that, for me, is the one main unanswered question when it comes to January 6th. You know, we see in the crowd, and like the more you look at it, the more it becomes apparent that at the Guardian, we like to think of them as kind of like signalers. You see these people with giant flags. For instance, there's this one guy on the TV tower on the inaugural platform. At all of the key moments, he is waving this giant flag, whether it's, you know, the moment that Proud Boys kind of surge forward with the crowd, whether it's when 
they're getting beaten back and they're repulsed by Capitol Police and MPD. This guy is there waving. It's almost like a signal. It's almost like it's coordinated. Maybe it's a coincidence. But at every key moment, there is some sort of signal with a giant flag emphatically waving it in a very particular way, almost as if it's a signal. And that has been kind of our interest. I understand that some of this information has also been passed along to the FBI and and to the the select committee. It's very, very difficult to decipher and to identify who these people are and what their connections were. But there are certainly people above the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers who we believe coordinated at least some of the assaults on the Capitol that day. The fact that it was coordinated violence makes it very sinister and very scary, right? We've never really seen this before through kind of hook or crook of kind of a former president effectively, whether it's through his tweet or whether it's through his comments on January 6th. I mean, it certainly seems to have been way before January 6th that Trump kind of ginned up these extremist groups, but they were ready for violence and they came prepared for violence and they came in a way that was coordinated. They had quick reaction forces with weapons stationed across the river because they knew they couldn't have weapons in D.C. But if something went down or if Trump caught up the militias, they would be ready to fight. And they had kind of caches of weapons. I just That always struck me as very planned. And then, of course, the other one major unanswered question is the fact that there were these kind of pipe bombs around the Capitol. That has always been one thing for me that has suggested the Capitol attack wasn't just some hillbillies running on the Capitol and conveniently trashing the place. Someone had the foresight to think to bring bombs to distract Capitol Police and other law enforcement that morning, just hours before the Proud Boys led the attack on the Capitol. So Hugo, before we let you get out of here, where can we find you online and where can our listeners find your work? Well, on Twitter, I'm at Hugo Lowell. On Instagram, I'm at Hugo X Lowell. You know, got to keep it edgy for the Gen Zers. And then obviously, you know, I write for The Guardian. All the reporting is in The Guardian. All of the stuff that doesn't make it into my stories because they have to get edited out or because we only have one source or, you know, I'm trying to give people an insight into kind of how the reporting process works and what we're hearing. All of that really is on, I was on Twitter. And everyone, I'm telling you, follow at Hugo Lowell. The man is a scoop machine. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Hugo Lowell, thanks for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.